Welcome to Lit from the Basement. Vanity Press. This is Max. This is Danielle. And in this installment, we are going to talk about Danielle's book, Our Emotions Get Carried Away Beyond Us. Don't they, though? <laughs> so I'm going to go right in. The title of this book is taken from an essay by Montaigne. Can you tell, me, can you tell us, me, uh-huh. how Montaigne influenced this work? Yeah, okay. So... I had been reading a lot of Montaigne's, and if you haven't read any Montaigne, you should pick him up. He's considered the the father of the personal essay. Yeah, I had I've never had not ever heard of him until I asked you who he was. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it may be just like a a nonfiction buff thing. Uh, so yeah, he's considered the father of the personal essay. He was writing in the 1500s in France. Mm. And retired from public life pretty quickly and then spent the rest of his time writing these really quirky, bizarre essays in his study. And he decided to do a kind of study of himself in some ways and his values and what he thought. Mm -hmm. Also in conjunction with, he was a very erudite person. He had read all of the classical literature he could get his hands on um, and any of the contemporary as well. And so the essays, because he doesn't really have any model, he's Mm -hmm. sort of making things up as it goes, they kind of jump between personal experience, contemporary issues that were contemporary for that time, Mm -hmm. and ancient knowledge. Partly they're bizarre because the the limitations of of knowing at that particular time Mm -hmm. were fairly great. (laughs) There was a lot of misinformation, especially with regard to like science, sociological structures. There are a lot of strange presumptions. Okay, that sounds exactly like this afternoon. (laughs) 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 The news this afternoon, like strange (laughs) misinformation. Ignorance, wild presumptions. (laughs) Wild presumptions. (laughs) That's quite funny. I mean, he he actually was quite a radical thinker for Mm -hmm. his time, Mm -hmm. certainly. And so he's kind of a pleasure to read. I had been writing several of the pieces that jumped in the same way mm-hmm. between personal experience, contemporary issues, and ancient knowledge. I was interested in, in sort of trying out those leaps. And so uh, there are several poems uh, in the uh, book that were originally published, actually, as essays. There, there, there were poems that were published as essays. Yeah, I published I, the six poems in here that take this form, I published as essays. Hmm. They are. I have a question about that, and we'll get. We'll, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Or maybe we can go right into it. Basically, right. uh, six of the poems uh-huh. in here right. um, are long, not quite formed. And, and what I mean by formed is what I see like from poems. I don't see line breaks or stanzas or. There's quasi stanzas. There are really what I would call strophes. <laughs> um, um, is, is that something you made up? A strophe? No, I did not make this. Sounds strophe. like an award. <laughs> They're in awards. They're in medals. <laughs> no, uh, strophe is a uh, is a term. It's a term from Greek theater, actually okay. ancient Greek theater. They're they're kind of like lyric paragraphs, mm-hmm, if you want to think mm-hmm, of it that mm-hmm. way. And actually, they they are formed. There, each of those paragraphs are are six lines, and the sixth line has to be sort of cut off in the middle. Usually, it doesn't it doesn't end there, so the person is forced to read on to the next quote unquote lyric paragraph. These are essays in that I everything in them is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do include a lot of ancient references to ancient texts and ancient philosophers mm-hmm. in this, trying to reconcile their understandings with my contemporary knowledge of it. And of course, I can't always do that. So sometimes it's it's me being critical 
of those ideas. Yeah, originally those were essays. So I was I was doing this project where I was writing a series of poems. I thought not sorry. I was that I was writing a series of essays, uh, all taken from Montaigne titles. And I was doing this for a couple of years, just sort of hammering away at them. Mm-hmm. And it took me a very long time. Each of those took me a very long time to write. And in the middle of this, I get an, an email from a friend of mine, Patrick Madden, who who says, hey, I'm, I'm putting together this really weird project that maybe you want to be a part of. I'm taking a bunch of contemporary essayists and giving them Montaigne titles, and they're supposed to write essays from these titles. I know it's sort of short notice, but do you think you could have any, anything to me by August? And kapow. Yeah, I immediately wrote back with four. Like, <laughs> here are four that you can you can choose from. <laughs> I have been working on this on my own. <laughs> Beggar's banquet. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He made some joke about, you know, it just being in the water or part of the zeitgeist or something. But at that point, I realized because he was putting together this, this what ended up being a really wonderful collection mm-hmm. of contemporary essayists on Montaigne called After Montaigne. In that particular collection, it was going to be published the next season. I was like, well, I'm clearly not going to get done with my book and publish it before then. So anything that I come up with after this is going to look derivative. Mm -hmm. Like I just kept going with this project that Patrick gave me. So I was like, well, I have to abandon that. What do I do with these weird essays? And once I, I looked at the poetry manuscript I was also writing at that time, I realized that they worked really quite well as foundational Uh, poems for the piece. So then uh, there are six really chunky. So it's kind of like placement salvage or salvage placement. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) And also just a quick note, the artist on this uh, is uh, I was the uh, best man at his wedding and he officiated our third wedding ceremony. We had many wedding ceremonies. Yeah, because uh, you know we couldn't have a destination wedding or have people come to us. So we just our, we took we took our show on the road. Yeah, yeah. We got we got married in courthouse, and four hours later we were on a plane to Spain for our honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was we went to Los Angeles so my friends and family could attend a backyard wedding, mm-hmm. and then to Portland so your friends and family could attend a backyard wedding. Indeed. Anyhow, so that's the awesome art on that book. Just thought we should do a shout out to Paul Rutz. Yeah, I mean it's it's a beautiful piece of art. I'm I'm. So super thrilled that it's the cover of this particular book. People have described it to me as beautiful and other people have described it to me as creepy. (laughs) It it looks like a tortured hand. Yeah, in front of a bunch of uh, tortured instruments. I love it. (laughs) I think it's beautiful. And this book happens to be dedicated to me. It does. Anything I did to merit that other than just... (laughs) Being um, casually awesome in your life. <laughs> Showing up at the right time. Well, you gave me a place to stay when I was writing it. I jumped out of you my... You paid for your rent and lodging and uh, your food and lodging <laughs> in trade. <laughs> well, I was, I was itinerant for that year. I didn't have a place to stay. I was getting out of a bad relationship and had to jump out of a lease and then didn't have money to jump back into another lease. And so friends were putting me up. And then I was house-sitting for a while, and then Max took me in, and we lived in his studio apartment at his artist colony that he was living at the time. And we fell in love, and then I moved to Cincinnati um, to take a position as a tenure-track position at the, in the doctoral program at the University of Cincinnati, where I taught for four years. So many of these poems were written like with you sitting in the next room <laughs> and or cooking some chili. 
or mm-hmm. and or bringing me a cup of coffee or something. Yeah, the poem, the poetry book had to be dedicated to you because you were uh, very much in my life and a kind of muse for me. Especially probably on those hot, humid summer days when I was fanning you with a palm frond <laughs> and uh, feeding you grapes. When was this? <laughs> <laughs> I I love your version of of reality. I wish I had experienced it. <laughs> um also uh you do have have a couple poems in here that are specifically for you. Well, that's the needle and thread, right? Yes. Um but there's actually an earlier one too, What I Fear. <laughs> I hate that you do not know that. I have not well also I have not read this in a couple of years. Uh, I know it's not your favorite of the books. (laughs) It is nevertheless dedicated to you. It's my second favorite. (laughs) It's my first favorite among the poetry. (laughs) But the other ones, the future is in there. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that that wasn't dedicated to you, but it it should be. Well, this book seems far more um, political. Ah, uh, yeah. Than your previous collections. Yes. Um, the fact that I think you're going to be starting this reading off with uh, American Curse. Yes. Why the shift? I think that this ended up being just an organic shift in my thinking. Mm-hmm. From the internal to the external? or Yeah, in some ways. And, and, and just it, between the first book and the second book, I did some growing up and I did more reading. And I got more involved, mm-hmm. and I was more interested. But I think also um, one of the one of the largest, I think, political awakenings for me was actually once I got pregnant and mm-hmm. was giving yeah. birth. Beyond all of the strangeness around being a pregnant woman in the society, and also working and being a professor, beyond all of that, I, I was thinking a lot about the future and our country and the kind of world that I was bringing my son into. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a lot of apprehension. And so I think that I was sort of meditating on that a lot when I was writing writing this book. But I think also I just sometimes get, just get really tired of talking about myself. <laughs> so much of my work is autobiographical. And like I sometimes write it just to get it out. And it, sometimes it turns out to be good. And so then I publish it. But then I have to like go and, and read them and think about them and then answer questions about them. And I'm like, oh God, I'm really tired of talking about myself at this point. And I wanted to draw attention to some issues outside of myself that I was more interested in talking about at that time. In some ways though, I feel like the book was published about a year too soon. It was published in 2015. Yeah. Oh, the halcyon days. We were so naive. (laughs) I had no idea what was coming. You know, like I feel like a lot of people were being really pretty politically complacent at that time. And even though I was sort of ramping up uh, on my own is, is largely what it felt like, like in the, in the early reviews of the book, and they were all like positive re- reviews as most poetry reviews are. It's, it's not exceptional in that way. But they were like, Doolin has a very fearful view of American society. Like, and, I, and, I, and I remember thinking like, and you don't? Yeah, you just put your antenna up. You can see what's coming <laughs> even then. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I kind of feel like if it, if it had been published a year or two later, that that it might have. Had it been published in the second half of November of 2016, you would it would have been 
insanely prescient. This woman <laughs> has her finger on the pulse. And <laughs> but that wasn't the case. It was in 2015. No. By the time 2016 rolled around, the book was buried. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so give us a quick rundown on the few pieces you're going to read from this buried book. Okay. This buried treasure. <laughs> So I'll read American Curse, uh, mm. which I wrote uh, right around the time of the Sandy Hook school shooting. Mm-hmm. I was largely trying to avoid thinking about that and having feelings about that generally because it was too upsetting. Uh, and then I decided I was going to stop avoiding and just go into it. The second piece is Dirge with a Love Song in it, which is really a love poem to my grandmother mm-hmm. who passed away a few months before my first son was born. And that was a huge heartbreak for me because she was a a very large person in my life. It chronicles, uh, to a certain extent, um, a story from her life that she told me the last time that I saw her. Mm -hmm. In movies, the future is a fun one. (laughs) Fun in a dark way. I wrote it right after uh, watching Blade Runner and Aliens back to back as... um, Well, that is is your... That's a prerequisite for any any good sci-fi. Alien and Blade uh, Runner. I, I hadn't watched them, and Max uh, was like, well, we're going to watch them. So we did, and they were wonderful. And then it got me thinking a lot about the way that the future is depicted in movies. Our Emotions Get Carried Away Beyond Us is one of these, obviously, the, the titular title of the book. And it uses the form that I was talking about, jumping between personal experience, contemporary issues, and ancient knowledge. In that particular one, if you want to listen for a theme Everybody in the poem is under the thrall of a charismatic leader (laughs) who is wrong. (laughs) And the last one is uh, Winter Inversion, um, which is an unrequited love poem um, set in Salt Lake City during, um, (laughs) if you don't know what the Winter Inversion is, during the wintertime, Salt Lake City fills up with smog because it's the topography of the surrounding area is like a soup bowl. It's surrounded, ringed by mountains. During the wintertime, uh, the cold kind of acts as a cap, and it keeps all of the smog in, and it creates this really bizarre atmosphere in Salt Lake City. It's all smog, but it's so thick that it looks like fog, like any representation you've seen of like London during the cold days. And during that time, um, a lot of the creatures get sort of confused. And there's usually a proliferation of snails and slugs that come out then that that are never there, of course, during the rest of the year because it's a desert. Mm. It's high desert. Okay. And the first one we're starting off with is? American Curse. American Curse. May dark soldiers lead you through the mountains. May you find the criminal weeping in his hands. May the scent of whiskey rise from your horses. May you build your mansion in the sands. May the beauty of your children be too great for kindness. May the forest reappear when you close your eyes. May your dogs grow wild as your heart grows tame. May your bullet always meet with its aim. Dirge with a love song in it. 
an ache at the back of my skull and the snow-dredged distance seem to coincide, as do the abdicating boughs of dogwood and the lone girl in her woolen coat who waits at the corner for the light to change. It's the lack of color in her cheeks. No, it's the way she clasps her hands, a falling prayer, how the windows of the office building across the street divide her reflection with their grid of blinds, the way the workers leave exactly as the moon rises, a burning memory above them in the worn kettle of the night, how they've become the thin broth they might have sipped as fevered children that reminds me of you, the you I've only seen in black and white, your skinny legs and dark eyes, your serious mouth pressed shut, as mine is now. I'm driving. The road is a pattern in your funeral dress, swirling and smooth, the ash of your hands quietly folded. The priest in my mind murmurs something about the body, how vulnerable the body, like warm wax. I'm too far away to hear. A love song swoons on the radio, like the one you must have heard on your drive, 65 years ago, to L.A. from Tucson, where you left behind a husband still laughing at the bruise he left on your cheek, the baby asleep in the back seat. You glanced in the rear view, then at your own face in the mirror, the dry black road shimmering like a wake. I am ashamed to say I never thanked you for driving toward a future into which I would someday be born. The radio plays, and I turn it up, the bridge blaring like the slow explosions that fill my dreams. I run and run and turn the corner of an unfamiliar hallway, an unclasped door opening to an aisle. See how light enters the dirge, the stillness in the field beyond the sill. See how your family, standing on the hill beneath the pine, lines up to let the loose earth slip through their fingers back to you. See the green, sorrowed air where I'm not, where I couldn't bear to be. How I've driven so long thinking of you that you have become the song, the mirror, the prayer, and the road just past the reach of headlights. In movies, the future is always a wan dystopia, a glut of wrong turns, buildings built upon buildings, the wet, dark streets trapping the hero into an unavoidable violence. And people fly. They fly in terrible machines, as if in the guts of mantises. And no one can tell the difference between the real human and the one whose skin is synthetic, whose heart works in a low horror until the hero stabs them and finds, instead of blood, a white froth gushing out. And always the androids themselves are surprised to find they were not, after all, human, though they had memories, 
felt love, were afraid to die, believed, as we do, that what we create, we have a right to destroy, without explanation, without shame, which is why we share the hero's horror at the end. We see it in his eyes, as he slowly stares down to his palm, cut open in the fray to find not blood, but a tangle of wires sparking out of him, a rush of wet white clouds. Our emotions get carried away beyond us. When Pythagoras conceived of the music of the spheres, he believed he understood the universe, how celestial bodies moved in musical ratios, the world sensible and clean. This is why he lived simply in the hills with his students, the mathematicoi, without need for possessions, women, or meat. The universe could be explained in rational signs, so they drew equations and played instruments, not to please the gods, but to maintain their order in the universe. In the course of their practices, however, they found the proof of irrational numbers and concluded that the universe also contained things that are irrational. This idea so threatened the Pythagoreans that they kept its existence a secret. When one of the students told an outsider about it, they drowned him in a lake. It's instinctive to be drawn toward water, thirst, baptism, a longing to be clean, so he would have thought nothing of following his friends, dust rising from the roads like a thin, glittering shroud. It was night, but because the day was hot, the water would have been as warm as a body, like the summer waters of any dry landscape, eastern Oregon even, with its bronze hills, the air pungent with sage. I went there one summer with a friend I followed everywhere. She was a year older, lithe and electric, said she knew about men. We spent our days wandering whatever route led away from her family's cabin, whatever cut through the knotweed and short, twisted pines, while I asked questions, and she instructed, sometimes stopping in the shade of a boulder to practice kissing. It hurts like this, she said, touching my sunburned shoulders. It always hurts like this, until we grew weary, then wandered back. She also taught me how to measure the distance of lightning from earshot, count the seconds between flash and thunder. Once, we were caught in a storm and ran home late, soaked, her mother and father already fighting by the time we arrived. Her mother burned the meat. He threw her by her shoulders to the floor, called her idiot, let his fist hang over her, white as a star. And by daylight, the women with their coolers by the river, over their minted cigarettes and solo cups full of gin squinted toward their children wading in the water, talked about the latest news, a woman who, sick of loneliness, drowned her children for the man she loved. They shook their heads, a slow, uncertain no, and sipped until the faint glow of their smokes lit intermittently in the darkness, a code. 
Years later, when trying to leave a brutal lover, I would return to him crying, and he would bite into my shoulder, leave a plum-colored crescent, and I'd think of those women, of how he deserved it. It hurts. It always hurts like this, my friend murmured to me in shade or in darkness, but each morning when we left the cabin, when the sun slanted toward us, two bright arrows, we were silent as we aimed for the old, familiar trail, silent as we wandered away from the path, each other to walk figure eights in the wild scrub brush, listened to the patterns of the wind. We like to say, the song of the wind, but if there is a song, it offers no meaning, no explanation, only a music we can't order, or else an order that's always undone by what we don't yet perceive. So, no perfect music, as the mathematicoi believed. Only the few notes Pythagoras must have hummed to himself as he walked beneath the erratic stars, his sleeves and hem still wet from the lake. Only his voice wavering above a rhythm of footsteps as he wove between the dark arms of juniper, while the boy's eyes, beneath the water, no longer seeing, remained open. Winter Inversion, Salt Lake City All winter the air has been at record-breaking levels of toxicity. Announcers warn not to go out in the red days, Seagulls displaced from coastal cities cry poison over the desert plains. We pretend not to live where we do, that we don't turn away from each other with regret. I try to avoid breathing in your scent. Long ago, glaciers carved this valley, then melted away into sand. The change was torture, and now the stunned hills shudder go white. You see, it's not a simple mimesis, memory for landscape. It's the silence, the smog, my skin blazing for you like a lamp at the end of a wharf where an ocean never was, or was so long past it no longer matters. I can't stand it anymore. At night, when I walk out, I feel the crush of shells beneath my feet, snails fooled by the cool, wet air. So at first I think I've arrived at a shore. Then I see how I've murdered what would have delighted me, how they must have shone in the dark, reaching out their antennae before them, blind and gleaming. I find no pearls within their ruined flesh, I know that you will never touch me.